This episode of Practical Guidance, we hear from attorney Eric Benson. Eric is a renowned author for Lexis's Practical Guidance Research Solution. He has penned multiple key treatises in intellectual property, on trade secrets, and other areas of IP. Benson has his own practice as well, where he represents clients on IP matters. I spoke with Eric recently about the Defend Trade Secrets Act, its current state, and potential changes to come. For the listeners out there interested in the topic of trade secrets and many other related issues, you should visit Practical Guidance and check out some of his articles on the topics. You'll find some links in the podcast notes. I'm your host, Kevin Hilton. I'm an attorney with LexisNexis. To learn more about LexisNexis' Practical Guidance research solutions, visit Lexis.com. Lexis' Practical Guidance gives you insights to support what you do. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today for the Practical Guidance Podcast. So as many of our listeners know, uh, you are an author and have published multiple key treatises and articles in the, art, in the area of uh, intellectual property and practical guide, uh, for Practical Guidance and for um, Lexis Plus. Uh, and today, uh, we're going to speak on the topic of trade secrets and uh, the Defend Trade Secrets Act of 2016. But I wonder if you would uh, first tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your practice background. Sure. Now, first of all, thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to join you today. I'm looking forward to this. Um, as far as my background, um, I've been in practice for 26 years. The last 24 has been entirely intellectual property, mostly trade secret patents and IP licensing. I worked about 12 years at big firms in New York City, uh, but in the last 14 years, I've been uh, basically independent and I focused on two things. Um, as you noted, uh, I do a lot of writing. I have, uh, I have six intellectual property treatises, including Milgram on Trade Secrets, which, which is the leading treatise on trade secret law. We also have pat, um, treatises on patent law, IP licensing, uh, uh, New York intellectual property law, patent opinions. I have some other books, including a dictionary of patent terms and another book on gray market strategies. And as you noted, um, Alexis has some very helpful uh, uh, shorter articles in there, uh, what you better call practice guidance. And uh, I, I think I write maybe 10 or 12 of those, including the ones that cover trade secret law. Uh, uh, nationally as well as the federal act. And the other thing I do is I work as an expert witness. Um, I just submitted a report in a German proceeding on U.S. patent law. Uh, I've appeared in an English proceeding on uh, U.S. intellectual property licensing. Uh, I testified in a trial in uh, Missouri on, uh, as an expert on trade secret law. And then otherwise, I just, yeah, as clients come along, I help out with various IP issues. Uh, you know, it could be litigation, it could be uh, licensing, it could be drafting, negotiating pretty much whatever they need. Uh, you are a prolific uh, writer, that is for sure. And that is what a, what a cool, diverse practice here you've got going on. I, I actually recently read the practice notes, uh, one of your practice notes on practical guidance on the topic of trade secrets, which you referenced after I see some news on how state and federal law is, in, is evolving in the area. Um, and for those out there listening, the article is fantastic. I highly recommend it to anyone out there looking to get a clear background in, in federal and state trade secret protection issues. So just in context of, uh, it's mentioned, we we're going to talk a little bit about trade secrets and the uh, Defend Trade Secrets Act of 2016. Um, my understanding is that gave people the first opportunity to, find, to file a federal private cause of action for trade secret misappropriation. And I wonder... 
have state laws had an impact on how courts have construed the DTSA? Oh, very much so, um, in both predictable and unpredictable ways. Uh, by the way, thank you for your kind words about the article. <laughs> um, by, by way of background, uh, trade secret had always been, trade secret law had always been state law. But as you, as you point out, what the, the Defend Trade Secret Act did was for the first time create a private cause of action for trade secret misappropriation. Uh, interestingly, the, um, the, the, the little bit, like I said, trade secret law is typically state law. And in most states at the time the DTSA was adopted, 47 states had adopted the Uniform Trade Secret Act as their state law for trade secrets. The Uniform Trade Secret Act, among other things, uh, provided a definition of misappropriation, a definition of trade secret, and also provided a, a framework for uh, recovery for misappropriation. The, those elements, the, uh, the corresponding elements in the federal act were taken from the Uniform Act, not necessarily word for word, but courts have routinely said they, they, it's the same definitions in those respects. And so, as you, as you might expect, as courts have addressed the federal act, They've looked into looking look to state law to understand what those definitional elements are. What does it mean to misappropriate? What does it mean to be a trade secret, etc.? And what's what's kind of interesting is in your typical trade secret case today, the court will note that the plaintiff has brought both a state law and federal trade secret law claim. We'll say a few words about them both being pretty much uh, pretty much having the same requirements. And then go on to discuss the case as if it's really just one body of law. In other words, they don't really distinguish between uh, the two bodies. So in that sense, state law is very much playing a very influential role in, in the, the Defend Trade Secret Act. In that respect, New York is kind of interesting because New York is the one state that uh, does not have, uh, doesn't have the Uniform Trade Secret Act or any other statute. Uh, it's still what they, uh, what we, uh, I should go back, it still follows the restatement of torts. Now, prior to the UT, to the Uniform Act, all states followed the restatement of torts, 757, and its comments defining a trade secret. The Uniform Act was based on the restatement. And of course, as I mentioned, the Federal Act was based on the Uniform Act. And so in New York, even though you don't have a Uniform Act, courts have been looking to the restatement to, you know, basically their state law to construe the, the Defend Trade Secrets Act, which is kind right. of interesting uh, development. And then there's some there's elements that are not in the Uniform Act that are common in state law, and those two have been incorporated into the, the federal act. Uh, for instance, it's almost a uniform requirement that a plaintiff uh, identify a trade secret with reasonable particularity before taking discovery. Uh, that's not in the state, typically not in the state acts, but it's it's as a matter of practice. And so far, the Third Circuit and the Ninth Circuit have both adopted that same rule for the federal act. The next thing to look for is how the courts handle uh, presumption of irreparable harm. Uh, the state law is generally that uh, there is a presumption of irreparable harm where the plaintiff can show a threat of disclosure. The rationale being that a disclosed trade secret loses its value and it's very difficult to place, uh, place to compensate for that value to determine what it was. Right. And of course, as you know, after e after eBay, the courts, uh, you know, where, where the courts said there's no presumption of irreparable harm in patent law. Courts, federal courts have tended to apply eBay to other areas of IP. And so far, we see that with the DTSA, no, you know, no presumption of irreparable harm. But so far, there hasn't been a good case to address um, irreparable, the presumption of irreparable harm where there's been a showing of a threat of disclosure. And it'll be interesting if that comes up, 
whether courts will look to the state law practice or whether they'll apply eBay. I suspect the state law practice, but we'll see. Um, the other interesting thing, is, as I mentioned, the, the state law has played a predictable role in the sense of, of what I was saying, but then also an unpredictable role. Um, and by, by, by way of background, the Uniform Trade Secret Act and the Defend Trade Secret Act both provide for the recovery of exemplary damages for attorneys um, or attorney's fees for willful and malicious misappropriation, but don't define those terms. State law practice, uh, the majority uh, will define willful as done with knowledge or constructive knowledge of consequences, and they define malicious as done with an intent to cause injury. And that's the one where there's some difference. Um, so far, well, early on, uh, the Fourth Circuit adopted the intent to cause injury definition for, for malicious. Uh, and actually, they cited to my treatise for that. And some other courts have done so as well, making the, the federal act um, consistent with state law. But in Texas, Texas actually, its Uniform Trade Secret Act uh, actually expressly defines malicious to mean a conscious disregard for the rights of the trade secret holder. As an aside, I'm somewhat troubled by that because to misappropriate a trade secret, you have to know that you're misappropriating a trade secret. And it seems to be a very fine line between knowing you've misappropriated a trade secret and acting in conscious disregard for the trade secret owner's rights. And that's really mm. an aside. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting is that there, there was a, a district court decision, a federal court, um, late last year, and it was faced with the question, well, what, what does malicious mean under the DTSA? And if courts have done, it looked to state law and decided that malicious means conscious disregard. And that's a very interesting problem. There, the court could have really had a choice, although it didn't tee it up in these terms, it had a choice. It could either construe the federal act consistent with state law so that in Texas, both laws are the same, or given the Fourth Circuit authority in some other cases, it could have construed the federal act in a manner that was consistent with other federal courts. But then it would have resulted in trade secret law, uh, state and federal trade secret law being in conflict within the state. And what's interesting about that is there's really no way around it. Even in that, in you, if you have a state enactment that differs significantly from other state enactments, either trade secret law will be inconsistent in the state or will be inconsistent in the state, but the federal act will be construed in, inconsistently across the courts. Um, and, and, and what's interesting is because the whole, the, point, the selling point of the DTSA was to make the law uniform, but in that circumstance, it, it just can't. Are there states that are being looked at more regularly for interpretation over others? It's a very interesting question, and, and I, I cover this in my treatise. As I mentioned, most courts these days will, will look at the state act and the federal act and just tr and treat them together. And so you don't, oftentimes you don't get a clear statement of, you know, the, the federal act means this or the federal act means that because they just, they just handle them together. But because New York, there's a restatement and the federal act are very different. They, they use the restatement to construe the federal act, but they're different, um, they're different laws. Courts in New York tend to look at the, the, the Defend Trade Secret Act in isolation, which means their holdings are more clearly about the federal act. And I suspect over time, that you'll see New York being looked at more often than other courts for that very reason. Not because the law is better or worse, but because you get, you're get you more likely to get a decision that is expressly and clearly directed at the federal act in isolation. Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. I haven't seen that. Not yet. Not yet. But I think over time yet. you'll see that. You'll see that probably. That makes sense what you're saying.
So in order to qualify for a DTS, <coughs> excuse me, a DTSA claim, uh, I understand you have to satisfy an interstate commerce, commerce requirement. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, you know, as you know, the, the Constitution expressly gives Congress power over patents and copyrights, but it's silent as to trade secrets, also trademarks, but that's a different story. Um, and so for Congress to regulate trade secrets in any, in any way, it has to operate within its interstate commerce power. And so the DTSA provides um, that to, to pursue a claim, the, the trade secret has to be, re, quote, related to a product or service used in or intended for use in interstate or foreign commerce. Now, the interesting question in, in my mind early on is, well, how, how meaningful would that limitation be? As you probably know, maybe from law school, maybe more recently, courts have tended to interpret the interstate commerce clause fairly broadly, maybe a little less so these days than, than you know, earlier in the 20th century, but, um, but still pretty, pretty broad. And in fact, a lot of trade secrets would meet it easily. I mean, if you think uh, formula for Coca-Cola, you know, that there's plenty of interstate commerce in soda. Sure. But the, the interesting about trade secret cases is a lot of them are come out of uh, arise from local businesses. Um, think customer lists. You know, if I have uh, say or or say uh, local market information, if I own say a real estate agency, and I have trade secret information about the local market, and, and an employee steals that information to go into competition with me. I certainly have a trade secret claim, but I have no interstate commerce nexus for that claim. And what's interesting so far, um, you know, as expected, some courts have not put a lot of focus on interstate commerce, but there are some cases that have rejected federal claims based on a lack of interstate commerce nexus. Uh, just to give you two examples, there's one case involving um, a GPS that was designed solely for use in Puerto Rico. That claim was rejected. And there's another claim where uh, it was a plaintiff healthcare provider's customer list, which was not interstate commerce. Uh, so the, the takeaway is that um, if your case, you know, as a, as a trade secret owner or a litigant or the, the lawyer, if you if you think you have an interstate commerce problem, uh, just keep in mind the courts at least sometimes are taking that requirement very seriously. So it's something that uh, you should be prepared to address. First, the healthcare list, the court rejected the argument that because the healthcare agency received federal funding, it was engaged in interstate commerce. It said, you know, you, what you look at is what you're selling, who you're selling to. And that was all interesting. Interesting. Got it. And with these DTSA claims, they provide for certain immunized disclosures and related notice requirements. I, I got from your, your article too. Can you just talk a little bit about those? Yeah, those, those are actually the big differences between the federal act and state law. And as you said, there's, there's two, immunized disclosures and the related notice requirement. What the federal law provides is that there's certain types of disclosures that will not give rise to a trade secret misappropriation claim. I, I warn people the language is very dense and very difficult to understand, but so I'm just gonna sort of generalize it. And that is um, if, you, if you as an employee believe your employer is engaging in criminal activity and you disclose trade secret information to a, to a relative agency confidentially, that would be considered an immunized disclosure. If your employee and you believe is engaging in right retaliation against you and you disclose trade secret information again confidentially to your attorney, that too would be an immunized disclosure. Um, and there's a third one, which quite frankly, I've never understood what it means. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, but that's, that's yeah, yeah, it's, it's, like I said, the language, I, I would say to anybody, if we have employees out there, if you think you may be in a situation like that, check with your attorney before disclosing anything. 
Uh, the language is very difficult and case law has really not done a lot to clarify it so far. It just hasn't come up too often. But on a high level though, there, there is a, there's such a thing as an immunized disclosure and it's, um, you, you, there's no trade, it won't give rise to a trade secret claim. What's interesting is, this is the one area of the DTSA that preempts state law, which means if, you're, if your disclosure qualifies as an immunized disclosure under the federal act, you're also immunized under whatever state law, whatever state trade secret law may apply. That too is kind of interesting because uh, typically as an employee, if, you are, if, if you're given trade secret information, you're probably given that information under a non-disclosure agreement. If you then disclose it, you, you, you know, again, if you make an immunized disclosure, you may be immunized under trade secret law, but you may still be liable for breach of contract. That's another issue that is not really addressed in the case law. Yeah, it could be it could be a real trap. And that's what I'm saying. If if you're contemplating an immunized disclosure, disclosure, you definitely want to talk to an attorney before you make that disclosure. So a good okay. Samaritan can essentially get hit with a civil claim themselves afterwards for a breach of contract is what you're saying if they're whistleblowing. Potentially. And I say that because the, uh, the, the, the provision, if it's 1833B, uh, specifically refers to not being held liable under state trade secret law. Those are the words. But a lot of people don't understand that a trade that, that if you're an employee and you disclose information, the employer may have two different claims against you, one for trade secret misappropriation right. and one for breaching your employment agreement. Yeah. Uh, which is different, different from other areas of IP. To every other area of IP, you have one of the other. In, in other words, like in patent, like if you use a patent invention outside the scope of the agreement, you've infringed. And if you use it within the scoping agreement, but don't pay a royalty, you've breached a contract, but those are, you, you won't have both claims at the same time. Got it. Yeah, so there's this related notice requirement. And basically what the DTSA says is that in, a, in an agreement respecting the disclosure of a trade secret, the, the, the trade secret owner has to give notice of those immunized disclosures. However, the penalty for not doing that is that the employer will not be entitled to uh, collect exemplary damages or attorney's fees under the federal act. Interestingly, that provision does not preempt state law. And what that means is if you are an employer who did not give that notice, you may be precluded from exemplary damages and attorney's fees under federal law, but you could still pursue them under state law. So how much teeth that notice requirement has, I think is, is kind of open to question. So uh, we've been talking about the DTSA with a little bit about the UTSA, the Uniform Trade Secret Act up till now. Can you tell me a little bit about how they differ and what are some of the reasons someone might bring the one over the other? Sure. First of all, there, there are circumstances where um, they'll always be different. And then there are circumstances where they'll be different only because of something about the state law. So where they're always different would include uh, the interstate commerce requirement and the notice requirement, which we did talk about. The big difference with the DTSA and state law is that the DTSA provides for an ex parte seizure order. And generally what that means is if an, uh, say a company knows that uh, an employee is taking say trade secret materials, uh, the, the employer can go to a court and if it meets the requirements, can the court will order law enforcement to seize those materials. Obviously in the right circumstance, that can be very helpful. And in fact, as I understood it, that was a big driving force behind the passage of the DTSA. But at the same time, there's a lot of pushback. The compromise was that the ex parte seizure order would be available, but it would, but you have to, but there's a lot of requirements placed on it. And just to give you an idea, the order itself would have to be based on eight findings of fact, most of which would, would go to typical injunctive relief, you know, irreparable injury, balance of equities, and such. 
But one of the requirements is that the moving party would have to show that there exists a threat of destruction or inaccessibility. And what that means is take a, a company and a former employee. If the, if the, former, um, the company would have to show to the court that the employee was, going, employee was going to destroy the materials or really leave the country. So it'd be outside the, the court's reach. What that means is if, if the employee took the materials to say, start up a competing company, then, then you might not be able to get that order. So it's, it's fairly limited in terms of when it, when it can be done. And also, if you get the order, what happens is, is that the court can order the seizure of the material, but then the court takes possession of the material and it has to keep it confidential. And which is, you know, an improvement. It's better than the former employee running off with it. But if you if you get those materials back, you might not know precisely what's in them or whether you really got everything back until later in the proceeding. Interesting. So the, the, the kind of, yeah, the takeaway is, is that the order is available. It can be a powerful tool if you can meet those requirements. And there are cases where it's been granted, but I don't think it's going to play quite the role in federal trade secret cases that uh, the drafters uh, anticipate. Another thing that will always be different between state and federal law is subject matter jurisdiction. In fact, many trade secret state law trade secret cases are heard in federal court, but the moving but the plaintiff has to show diversity or supplemental jurisdiction, which sometimes leads to, to motion practice, of course. Uh, under this, the federal act, uh, a federal court has original jurisdiction, so you don't have that issue. If you if you can state a viable claim for uh, Defend Trade Secret Act under the Defend Trade Secret Act, you're in federal court in a question. Uh, the other difference where it will always be different is standing. The general rule under state law, uh, and Utah does not expressly address standing, but the general rule under state law is that if you're the party that possessed the secret and you were the party from whom the secret was taken, you have standing to sue for misappropriation, which means generally owners and licensees, if they're the victims, will have standing to pursue a claim. Now, the DTSA defines for standing, gives standing only to an owner, which sounds more limited. But in fact, owner is defined to be owner, licensee, or an equitable title holder, which is interesting. I, the, the concept of equitable title has never really been developed in trade secret law. It has been developed in patent law. And in patent law, what that equitable title would come up in this situation. Um, I'm working on, I'm applying for a patent. You and I enter into a contract under, a, you know, forcible contract under which I agree to assign the patent to you when it issues. Okay. But when it issues, I assign it to a, yeah, when it issues, I assign it to a third party. In that circumstance, a third party is the legal title holder. Uh, on the books, it's the patentee. But what you have then would be equitable title holder, which is essentially a right to go to the court and say, you know, that patent is really my patent, order that party to assign it to me. That could come up in a trade secret case, right? If, if I'm working on an invention that we, I plan to keep as a trade secret, I agree to assign it to you, I eventually assign it to someone else, in theory, you would have equitable title in the invention. And that's, uh, and under state law, you might not have standing because you never would have possessed the trade secret. I think maybe there's arguments that you would, but as it stands, you probably wouldn't have standing. But under the DTSA, you would clearly have standing to bring that action. So that would be a, a difference. As I mentioned, there's other differences that, there, there may be differences depending on the state's enactment. I think the easy, easiest example here is a statute of limitations. Uh, the federal act is three years. Most state acts are three years, but some uh, have a statute of limitations of four or five years. Uh, and that means that in a given case, you might be time barred under federal law, but still have a claim under state law, again, depending on the particular state. 
There's also this idea of inevitable disclosure. In the state law, inevitable disclosure is essentially this theory. You go to the court and you say, well, my employee has gone to my competitor, uh, is working the same position that the, that worked at, you know, that uh, the employee worked at my company. And in that position, the employee cannot do the job without disclosing a trade secret. So it will be inevitably disclosed and therefore I'm entitled to an injunction. Uh, some states will allow you to do that. Some states uh, do not recognize that theory uh, or prohibit it actually. And some states have just not really addressed it fully. The federal act, although in somewhat um, vague language, uh, prohibits, does not permit an injunction based on inevitable disclosure. So what that means is if you're in a state that recognizes inevitable disclosure, and if it's your only theory, then really you have a, that's a difference between the federal act and the state act. Um, the other thing, and this is, this is unusual, but kind of intriguing, some, if, if, in a given situation, the state act may have a provision that just has no parallel in the federal act. And Nevada provides a very interesting uh, example of this. Again, by way of background, uh, companies are sometimes required to disclose confidential information to a state or federal agency. And the, the, the protection that they get is that if they, re, they can request confidential treatment, and then if there's ever a Freedom of Information Act type request for that information, the agency will withhold it if the agency is satisfied that it's protectable as a trade secret. Well, Nevada, a few years back, they, they amended their Uniform Trade Secret Act. They amended the definition of trade secret to provide that uh, information provided by pharmaceutical companies to the state health agency were not protectable as a trade secret. And the, the, the intent was, uh, what, what this was targeted at was insulation pricing information. The idea was that pharmaceutical companies would have to submit that information to the state health agency, and then the public could get it by requesting it from the agency. Interestingly, the agency after that promulgated a new rule saying that um, they would withhold that information if it was protectable under the federal act, which is very curious. And, and that, that rule actually went up to the Nevada Supreme Court and the Nevada Supreme Court said it was a, it was a proper promulgation of that rule. And so, this, so you have a situation where the insulin pricing is not protected under state law because of, a, of an express provision, but is protectable under federal law. Again, that's going to be unusual, but that certainly would be a difference between the federal and state law. Okay, so you asked, like, when, when would you bring one or the other or, or, or whatnot? <clears throat> generally, speaking, you want to, generally speaking, you want to bring both. Uh, it would be an unusual situation. Uh, well, let me put it this way. If you have a federal claim, you almost always want to bring a state claim. And bringing both gives certain advantages. So under the federal act, you might have uh, you might have a ground for an ex parte seizure order. You don't have a subject matter subject matter jurisdiction dispute. Um, but by bringing the U.S. the state claim, uh, if you did not give notice of those immunized disclosures, you can still recover your uh, exemplary damages and attorney's fees under the state claim. Generally speaking, if you have a federal claim, you always want to bring the state claim. The only time where you you really wouldn't bother with the state claim would be that uh, way of an unusual uh, Uniform Trade Secret Act enactment like the one in Nevada, right? or if you're in the, a very unusual uh, situation where your basis for standing is equitable title. Both of those could be very unusual. So generally speaking, if you have a federal act, presumptively bring the state act as well. It doesn't necessarily work the other way around. The problem is that if you, if you, have, if you definitely have a state act, and you, but you go to federal court and you know, because you have the federal act, um, if, you, if, you, if you can't bring both, you may run into a situation where you engage in motion practice and you get kicked back to state court and it, you know, 
if you think more time, more money. So if you have a state claim and you're thinking about bringing a federal claim, you really want to look closely at, uh, can you satisfy the interstate commerce requirement for this federal claim? Is, it, is there a statute of limitations question? Um, is, it, is, it a situa- is it a situation where the state has a longer statute of limitations, but you may be time part under the federal act? And you also ask, how important will inevitable disclosure be to your case? If it's central to your case, you may not have um, you may not have a federal claim. There, you may be able to claim, maybe it just won't prevail. But those are things you want to take a close look at. So, if you have a federal claim, you're pretty much always going to bring a state claim. If you have a state claim, you probably can bring a federal claim, but you want to take a close look at it. Eric, thank you so much. That's uh, in addition to the work that you have on uh, practical guidance and your other treatise. This has been really uh, helpful in kind of wrapping my mind around uh, the uh, DTSA and and the state the state laws at play as well and actions at play. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Okay, well, thank, thank, I'm glad you found it helpful and, and thanks so much for giving me uh, the opportunity to join you today. Eric, thank you again so much for your time and all the insight you've provided today. To learn more about Eric's practice, visit his website at ericbenson.com. And remember to visit Practical Guidance to see some of the valuable articles Eric penned for our solution. As a note, if you're enjoying these podcasts, Lexis is now offering practice-specific podcasts on the topics of data privacy and another on labor and employment. All of these Practical Guidance podcasts can be found through your favorite podcast providers, including Spotify, Apple, Anchor, and many others. Remember, no matter your practice area, if you need practical guidance on how to proceed in your work, check out Lexis Practical Guidance Research Solution, available now through Lexis. For more information, visit Lexis.com. Thanks and be well.